This week on The Futurists, Julian Bleeker. It would be encouraging, like, if, if we found a way to sort of, like, look at, you know, all the developments in AI, which are expansive and, and, and challenging, as looking at AI is like, oh, man, this is like, this is, we just, we invented a new kind of hammer. This is actually going to be an amazing tool. Yeah, and I think the, the more we have stories about the AI kind of breaking loose and then, you know, kind of making our toasters start kitchen fires, the harder it is to sort of imagine the opportunities. Hey, welcome back to The Futurist. I'm Rob Tursik with Brett King in the co-host chair. Hey. Hi, Brett. Hey, how you doing? Awesome, thanks. The future keeps getting more and more bright. Although here in LA, the future's really, really wet, unusually rainy week here. Well, you needed the rain though. Like it yeah. was like a thousand year drought or something, right? That's that right. Yeah. Now we're complaining about it. Of it's so typically yeah. Los Angeles. Like for seven years, we're begging for rain. Then we get seven no, years. I saw the photos the of uh, the LA River and, you know, it going crazy and trees getting, you know, yeah you know, drawn downstream and stuff. Yeah. It's, uh, um, you know, of course, a lot of that's going to get dumped in the ocean, which is not great for LA Oceanfront if you're a surfer or whatever. But anyway, oh, yeah, no, that, but we needed the always water. been the case. Yeah, and also we had snow. Uh, weirdly in Los Angeles, snow is not a very frequent thing. It's sort of a once in a century thing. And and we had snow on the beach. Uh, so that was fun. And, um, and, and speaking of Los Angeles, this week we have a guest coming to us straight from LA, an old acquaintance of mine, Julian Bleeker. Uh, Julian, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, you guys. Super well, fun me, to be here. A little bio intro, uh, the little introductory bio bit. So Julian is the co-founder of the Near Future Laboratory. So we're going to talk for sure about that. And he's a founding practitioner of design fiction, which is really the focus of this show. And he's the co-author of the book, The Manual of Design Fiction, which I have been reading. And Julian, I have enjoyed your book immensely. I get a lot of books, but I have to tell you, this one, I really enjoyed every minute of it. I was looking through it again last night. I keep underlining little little lines, and I'll, I'll probably refer to a few of them. It's, such, it's so packed full of interesting insights about the way we think about the future. Mm. Yeah, thanks for saying that. It's uh, It was definitely uh, a fun project to do um, over a long period of time, working with like four four authors and then an editor who is invested in the in the subject matter anyway so knows it and um there are four so four authors four phds so you're really not going to get a lot of work done very quickly and uh, one of them has two phds <laughs> so, oh, wow <laughs> twice as much pain yeah uh, now are, you're all in different places as well right so you're you're geographically dispersed as they say that's right yeah sort of a distributed collective of, uh, of of people. Is that what the Near Future Laboratory is? Is it like a collective of people who think about the future? Yeah, so it's it's gone through, um, I, I refer to it as we're now in our third evolution. Um, and and I like that it's able to, to change in these different ways quite organically. So it literally started out probably around the time that you and I met Robert, uh, when I first moved to LA and was teaching at USC, it was it was literally in my blog. So I was like, that's a cool URL, nearfuturelaboratory.com. Mm. And that was back when that's what that's what you did, you blogged. Um, and I was using it as a as a kind of platform in my in my teaching. It was a way to, you know, prior to like there being you know more robust kind of teaching online kind of systems and platforms and stuff so forth. I would just write up lessons on the blog and do it as a blog entry and just tell the students, hey, look here, um, mm. here's some ideas about you know what we're going to be working on and here's some notes and a lot of uh, sort of technical stuff like here's some code to try. This is like and, 2006 or so thereabouts. Yeah, yeah. So 2000, 2000, 2005, six, seven, eight, nine around then. And then um, as 
as as you mentioned, then I ended up at, at Nokia yeah. and it, it kind of continued in a way, but then I started doing a little bit more uh, going out into the you know conferences and that kind of thing and, and traveling and it sort of draw in other people around the topic. And so then that's when Nicholas Nova and Fabienne uh, Giardin just kind of came up to me. It's like, man, I love what you guys, what you're doing. And we had done some conferences together. Like, can we, you know, can we join the band kind of thing was, was the well, way it was, it was. And that was sort of like the second evolution. And then Nick Foster joined as well with this kind of just, Hey, let's just call ourselves a band, you know, and, 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 and we'll do That's what cool. we do. And it was never really focused ex as, as, a um, as people might assume it was never the intent to have it be like an agency or a company. Right. It was always like, let's just, let's, it's a dad band, you know, where we hang out on Wednesday <laughs> evening, play in the garage. Maybe we get a gig for the, for the Wednesday lunchtime crowd at the corner, at the corner bar or something. Um, but it's not a, it's not a band. It's a design. It is a design organization, right? You get, you're a professional designer and you solve problems. You solve design problems for companies. Yeah, that's right. And so that was the intent. The, 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 the purpose was, you know, essentially using the ideas, um, in and around design and technology and futures to, uh, as we say, make the world a more habitable place. That was our kind of li little kind of undergirding strap line, as it were. Yeah, it's a nice strap I like line. The, I like yeah. the near future, um, thinking, but of course, you know, um, uh, obviously the question is, how do you operate a lab in the near future? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yes. Um, I can answer that. Yeah, go, <laughs> go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's the, the, the intent both with that and with the, um, the, the, the work in and around design fiction, which kind of came out of, you know, in, in a very organic way around some of the things that, that was, go that were going on both at USC and at, at Nokia was to find the way to essentially spend time in the future, which I think is something that's sort of absolutely essential that we all do, um, a certain kind of uh, commitment as well as uh, sort of intellectual investment in what's next mm -hmm. and and beyond just the kind of what's that's next. That's what this like, show's about, actually. Yeah. So it's not like, what am I going to have for dinner? Um, although that is interesting. It's also like, what can we do in order to create the kind of futures that we want to occupy? And so it's, it's a bit of a, it's a provocation deliberately. So to say like, Hey, we make things from the future and people are like, Oh, that sounds cool. Like, how can I get a job there? And then they're like, wait a minute. So how do you do that? Like, what's yeah. the story? And so well, and that's they, what we're going to talk about on this show today. You're going to yeah, we'll get into that. it. Before yeah. we jump into that, though, let's let's just pay homage to Nokia, because there was a period of time right around the time you're talking about the mid 2000s, where Nokia was really at the forefront of imagining the future and designing the future in, yeah. in ways that I think today, maybe Apple is a company that does that. But boy, at the time, there was no one else doing that. Motorola. Uh, I, I, NEC, yeah, I don't know. Companies. Ten years ago, when I was doing my futurist keynotes, I would always have Nokia futuristic concepts up on the page. Yeah, yeah, they were you know, really my big presentations on and stuff. Yeah. And you, did you? What, what did what did you do at Nokia? Did you lead that process? Did you contribute to that that future vision process? Yeah, I was, I was, I was a contributor. I was in and around it. Um, I, I wouldn't say uh, I, I led it um, with a in this advanced design team. Uh, here in Los Angeles, it was over in Calabasas. Right. Uh, that was it. Was it was always it was sort of a shifting remit um, as Nokia was going through. You know, it was getting a little bit more chaotic, and people were tripping over themselves. But the the undergirding uh, perspective that I would I, I would say that I brought to it was like, okay, you know, it was questions of like, what what are the interesting things that we could do that are either going to um, prompt and poke and provide. Uh, pr prod people into thinking about new ways of interacting, new ways of communicating, new ways of sharing. 
And so we would just do these experiments. You know, they were, they were, they were like prototypical kinds of uh, design fictions, things from the future. And mm-hmm. we would use all kinds of means and mechanisms to represent those and express them, everything from actually making functional prototypes of things. We had this exquisite um, uh, model shop where we could actually fabricate material objects in an electronics bay uh, to just using film. You know, just telling stories, uh, visual stories through film to just sort of explain and represent new forms of interaction. Some of which we just felt were like, this is, you know, it's just that in a beautiful way, like, wow, that's cool. Like in a very kind of almost like adolescent way and not a, not a dismissive way. But you could say like, mm-hmm. I'm feeling something about what we're talking about, and what we're describing in terms of maybe it's something that indicates a new kind of interaction. As that's I recall, more common. I mean, that's more common today to have that type of function. You know, Apple has its XPG, the Experimental Products Group. Um, you know, you have the Moonshot programs at, at Google. Um, you know, it's more common to see sort of um, a part of the business dedicated to experimentation and pushing the boundaries. But um, well, there's a real know. big difference, though. Actually, this is a really good point you're raising, Brett, because. Um, you know, the Moonshot program is Google trying to find another $100 billion a year business to to supplement search, right? That's a, they're betting on industries and they're trying to figure out which industries they can reinvent and blow up and change and reconfigure to their, to their liking. But I think what Julian's saying, at least the way I saw it or the way I experienced it as an outsider working with Nokia at the time, Nokia was worried or thinking about, they were, they were preoccupied with the humanity in the technology. And they were thinking about like, how does this affect humans? What do humans care about? Like, you know, they would do research, like, you know, what are the, what are the 10 things everybody leaves their house with that they will never leave behind and keys are one of them, of course, wallets and ID and so forth. And they were really focused on like, well, how can we represent that in in digital? Uh, They were at the forefront of figuring out what the concept of a smartphone was way before the components were available. You know, they, they're like, we have this thing in our pocket. Right. What more can we do with it? And then it would be, and how does that change society? You know, things like voting sure. and, and paying for your parking and so on. Um, Julian has a good, yeah, rule. I remember those future videos that yes, that's right. came that's out with that, yeah. that sort of demonstrated some of those. It was about serving scenarios. society, yeah. right? It wasn't so much about how do we profit or how do we, you know, how do we dig the next oil gusher? Um, it was more about how do we, uh, how does this affect society for the better? At least that's the way I interpreted it. Now I'm not going to try to, maybe I'm being a little too naive here. Maybe I'm looking at the past with rose colored glasses. Julian, please correct me if I got that wrong. I, I'm feeling what you're saying. I, again, like I wasn't, I wasn't situated well enough to know if there was really like a kind of dark Sith Lord behind it all. But I, my, my sense, my sense was that the, you know, it, it was, it's a, there's a huge Finnish company, you know, it's like some major percentage of their, of their gross national product. And the, if, you know, if you know any Finns or spend time there, you, you there, there's a certain kind of, um, it, you know, it's the Scandinavian socialist sensibilities, not to yeah. use the S word and turn yeah, people yeah. up, but, but they, they felt good. You know, they, they want to do things for the, for the betterment of society. Yeah. Was a, but we need a that. Principle. Yeah. Of course I mean, we do. Yeah, clearly absolutely. We need that. Right. And, and, and I, and I would say, you know, part of if, if there were an element to, um, to the futurist, it's like futurists should have an Hippocratic oath. It, there should yes. be like some undergirding principle which says like, I'm doing this because I want to create no a more habitable me. world. Yeah, future that does no harm, do no harm. And I, I don't think that's necessarily always obeyed, whether, you know, within the futurist tribe, whatever that means, um, or the, I'm not saying you're sure, I'm saying like the people who call themselves futurists, obviously. Sure. Or or within um, within, you know, the ranks of the kinds of teams that you're sort of describing. So, 
you know, um, Google or Alphabet or whatever it is, they're, they're X. I, you know, I think you're on, on, on point there, Robert, and they wouldn't deny it. It's like, yeah, we're looking for, you know, we, we have a responsibility to find plan B. Yeah. Because, the, you know, we know that, that at some point, just like, you know, Sears, uh, we'll, we'll get, we'll get run over by someone else. Yeah. And, and um, demand it. So their, their, their futurism is in the service of investors and, you know, returning, uh, returning value to investors. You know, you, you mentioned an interesting thing that, that actually you talk about in the book as well, which is this bias that futurists, some futurists have, uh, you, you, you say, uh, they tend to focus on the optimistic scenarios and they tend not to uh, focus on the pessimistic or the, the negative consequences. And, um, I noticed that as well. And on this show, I'm always the one who's kind of like, you know, Cassandra saying like, hang on a second before you rush <laughs> off in that direction. Yeah, and like think twice, right? And um, and 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 sometimes that's a bad look, right? Because this is supposed to be an optimistic show about the future. But what I find is that it's very it's very easy to get corporations excited about the positive aspects. And it's very difficult to get them to focus or even think about um the negative consequences of what they're proposing to do. Fact, right. Especially, and especially if the behavior they're already exhibiting is negative. <laughs> That's exactly right. You know, like the, the five big tech companies that so dominate the U.S. and, and most of the world, uh, these companies, they're not altruistic. Uh, they make the right noises. Of course, they'll say things, they'll, they'll talk about being carbon neutral and so forth. Um, but these are very much for-profit enterprises, and they'll do every every possible thing they can to protect their their turf. You know, every move that Apple makes is to protect the iPhone. Every move that Google makes is to protect search. These are the, that's where they get paid, um, and they're going to defend it, and they'll do whatever is necessary to to protect that business. Well, maybe that's part of why Nokia is not still number one today, is because they weren't prepared to do that. And yeah. I think. Um, you know, I mean, I'm not trying to put words in Nokia's mouth or yours, Julian, but um, I, I do think that we are reaching an age where we're not talking, I'm not talking about ESG programs or co corporate social responsibility programs. I'm talking about the fact that culturally, if your organization is not committed to making the planet a better place, I think you're going to find it very difficult to do business in the future because I think the younger generation are going to look at, corporations in a very different way from the way we do today. Hmm. That's interesting. I mean, I think the generational aspect of the things we're talking about is, is, is fascinating. Um, partly because I think there is hope because that represents in, in some sense, you know, a generation coming up is going to be respond to the generation that is growing up within, you know, or the, 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 you know, their parents, they're going to look at it in a particular yeah. way. And, uh, I think that it, that is a source of of hope, you know, to the you know kind of the big existential issues that I think we're all very much aware of nowadays, and just try, trying to find a way to respond to it. Um, I, I think that the one of the challenges is that the the you know the overall like ideologies that surround us that have kind of effervesced by the by. Silicon Valley, let's say, because we're bringing up a lot of examples from right. from that from that site, are it's difficult to see outside of them as it is when you're kind of inside any particular kind of ideology. So, you know, like the, the fish and water thing. Like someone says, like, let's go check out the bar on the on the beach, and they're like, what's a beach? Um, so trying to find the ways that you can see outside of it 
and is is uh it hurts it's really really hard because you're gonna start talking about things that maybe run counter to the thing that you've always grown up with which is like no no this is great like look at that it's like seven percent year on year growth like wh why would we stop that i just i can't even talk to anyone about about stopping that if i talk to someone about stopping that i'm probably gonna get fired so i better not say anything <laughs> at all yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and yeah. So, as an outsider so, for sure right if you're an outsider yeah. and you're coming in and saying okay you got to think think differently okay they'll invite you in to do a talk but they're not going to engage you as a consultant for the long long haul because yeah. they don't really want to change that's really true you know what you're saying julian reminds me of a conversation i had with uh taro ojampera uh who was a pretty big deal at nokia he's on the board at one point and um toward the end of their reign he was the senior guy dealing with all the media and entertainment and so forth and I asked him what went wrong. I said, what happened to Nokia? Like, what went wrong? And he said, it's very simple. We persisted in doing business in the old way, even as the world was changing. Mm. And, you know, if you think about Nokia, they were very much a creature of telecom, right? So was Motorola, so was Ericsson, so were True. all the other yeah. companies. So one well, thing, yeah, the rule well, there was yeah. you never challenged the network operator. You know, in the U.S., that would be AT&T and Verizon and Sprint. You just, you, whatever they wanted, you serve them. You never challenged their dominance. And Apple came along and Steve Jobs, you know, controversial guy, but boy, you got to give him credit for this move. Yeah. He took a look at that and said, no way, we're not, we're not going through an orifice in order to get to our customer. We're going to do it. He did the Jedi mind trick thing. <laughs> he totally did. And he, he managed to convince AT&T to let him sell direct to the consumer. And that's really what broke that model. And ultimately, unfortunately, broke Nokia as well. Probably for the better, you know, probably for the better, because the world that we have now is... Um, the carriers were not really focused on customers at all uh, the, and the mobile operators. So then, you know, they, they, they kind of broke that stranglehold. Those companies still make plenty of money thanks to Apple and Android, um, but but the, they don't have the same measure of control over their customer now that that model has been broken. On the other hand, all it meant was that Apple and Google were able to build globe-spanning information empires on top of the telco network and really just push those telcos down into infrastructure and they you know, they put an upper limit on uh, upper bound on how much they can but, You know, I mean, this is not unusual to see industries go through this yeah. where they resist this sort of change and then, you know, a, a first principles player comes in, changes the rules and you know, um, comes over the top. We're seeing it in banking and, you know, with fintech yeah. right now. Yeah, globally. Yeah. And, the, and the banks have a lot of levers to like prevent disruption, right? They regulation. They're are, trying everything they can, but it hasn't worked. You know, if you look at so the macro so the fintech market is share, away at it. yeah. So I mean, some of the bigger banks are retaining market share and in fact, have taken market share from community banks, for example, in the States, but they've done so because they're playing catch up on digital versus say the fintechs, right? But all of the fastest growing financial institutions are all you know, fintech companies today, digital companies. Oh, that's interesting. You, you see it also in automotive. Right now, the big shift that's yeah. happening, people think, oh, it's about electric vehicles or, or it's about robotic vehicles or something. It's really about software. It's about hardware versus yes. software. And the car companies are gradually turning into software companies because with EVs, the components, it's just like a PC or a television yeah. set. The components are cheap and you can anywhere and anybody can build, you know, we're going to have a hundred electric vehicles coming from China in the near future. Uh, so that'll, that'll erode profit margins on just building and manufacturing. Not every car company sees themselves as a software company. Mm, yeah. Really hard for hardware companies to turn into software companies. There's very, very few examples of hardware companies that make good software. Apple sure. is the exception. 
And, um, and, and I don't know if Ford, I don't know if the lesson sank in. I worked with Ford in 2014 and I made this point. And of course, in 2014, it was full resistance. You know, they, they were like, no way, you don't understand. We're the best in the world at engineering and building auto bodies and motors. And I'm like, none of that stuff matters anymore. Yeah. It really, you know, yeah. They went on about safety requirements. Uh, it's back to the banks. It's like the regulations are what yeah, these yeah. big industries always but hide. What's behind. the regulator going to do about yeah. this? Well, the regulators aren't moving fast enough to change it, to prevent the change either. Even in the States yeah. where you've had, you know, a regulator fiercely supporting incumbents, right? You don't have a fintech charter or so forth, you know, um, still, you know, mobile wallet adoption, uh, you know, the, the pressure on real-time payments, all of that is coming because if you look offshore, the U.S. is like 10 years behind China now. So oh. you can't, it's not sustainable. Julian, how much of your work is international? How much of your work is the kind of work we're talking about, working with, you know, old incumbent companies to help them reinvent or recatalyze themselves? Um, it's uh, l- largely it'll be a, a you know, a, a newer company. Um, but also maybe feeling a little bit incumbent, like, like Google. <laughs> um, there's the, the engagements are, I'm, I'm a really bad salesperson. They're just like these organic kind of people reach out. They interesting, weird stuff going on there. Like, let's talk. Mm-hmm. Um, and the nature of the, the engagements is often, uh, it, it starts in a beautiful way where it's like, we're not sure what we want. Mm-hmm. We're not looking for a, you know, like a, a report. Could you do a survey of, uh, of, of, of the, st- of the state of play of our sector? Often it starts, uh, very much with this, uh, I call it general seminar. It's kind of a platform that, that I built up over the last few years to really o- almost like unpack the, the kind of collective consciousness of, of an organization or of a team and, and essentially take them into the, the future in a way. But doing it, doing it in a way that allows them to express their, both their hopes and their fears. And in that translation, we start to really sort of almost like set a stage of what that world might look like. And my, my goal is to help them feel into their future rather than just kind of go there as an all knowing kind of predictive oriented futurist kind of person be like, well, this is what you should be looking at. And this is what you should be looking at. So it's about um, organization. Organizational psychology, what you're saying, and and yeah, we've had futurists talk about that. Uh, Rohit Talwar came on and and talked to us about um, uh, non nonviolent co- conversations or non nonviolent communication. And Peter Hinson, who's a futurist in Belgium, also talked about the psychology of change and working with the psychology of the individual people and in the organization to help them embrace that. So, so what's cool about what you just said is that the companies that come to you realize they need to do something different. And they're open to it. Uh, you don't have to sell that because it's hard to sell that as yeah. a proposition if they're not willing to do it. And I think I think it's the kind of thing where the organization has to recognize, or the team, or the or the executive has to recognize, like, look, I just need another way of feeling into what's what's coming because these up into the right graphs uh, are, are not really helping. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, at this point uh, in the show, we like to do what we call a quick fire round. Uh, ask you a few. Uh, Oh, Rapid dear. fire questions. You up for it? <laughs> yeah, let's do it. Here is the lightning round. What was the first science fiction you remember being exposed to on TV or books or film? Yeah, it'd be a toss up between uh, Star Trek, definitely, but then my parents also had a copy of Jerome Angel's uh, um, Kubrick's 2001. So it was like the classic book that unpacked 
2001. And I just, I was enthralled by that. Absolutely enthralled by it. Very interesting. Um, is there a technology, um, you know, what, what technology do you think has most changed humanity in the past or present? Can I say fire? Sure. <laughs> I, th I, yeah. think be, I think it would You're be You're asking fire. permission. It's pretty cool. <laughs> it's pretty well, I don't know. It's like, well, you know, the, it the sort of was a big deal or something. Yeah. <laughs> and it's kind of still a big deal. <laughs> yeah, true. Yeah. Okay. Um, is there a, a particular futurist that set you down the path of becoming a futurist yourself or an entrepreneur that's influenced you in some way? Yeah. Okay. So the caveat is that I, I find that the title calling oneself a futurist sure. pro problematic. Um, and, uh, it's, it's a, it's just, it's an area I'm not super bothered by it, but I think that bringing, um, bring, you know, bringing the future to, to people as, as kind of performance is in a way what I see futurists doing. And I also see the, to the, to the question, um, if there were a futurist that I would refer to that I'm, I'm fascinated by for a whole bunch of different reasons, I would say um, Neil Stevenson. And the, yeah. the reason I would say that is is because I think he's he's managed to um, it, kind of insert himself uh, into the circuits of, uh, you know, idea circulation, um, which is to say that, you know, you know I don't know if it, I can see him like people like Elon Musk would invite him over for dinner. I don't know if they actually do. Sure. Or they're like, hey, can, I'm, I'm taking a, I'm taking a flight to uh, to uh, to to Istanbul. Can you want to jump on the plane? I'll, I'll have the plane fly you back when we're done. Just want to hang out for a bit. And I think it's it's that circuit of like kind of idea flow that I think is where we can start saying like, okay, how where are these futures coming from, and, and are they the ones that we want, or are they the ones that you know, in those conversations that, you know, Neil will just kind of like riff on for like 600 pages to where we're like, see, sure. look, this is the future because he said it and it'll happen to be this, the future that also, you know, uh, person X, Y, and Z in the position of power within Silicon Valley, whether it's Mark Andreessen or, 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 you know, or, or, uh, or um, Zuck or whatever, or whatever are, yeah. are like, are talking about and that they want for their reasons that, that they are absolutely probably convinced are the ones that we should, the futures we should occupy. They're like neural implants, flying cars, and, uh, and, and no, and no government. There is a, an evangelism aspect to totally. To this, sure. I think I think it's yeah. what undergirds it, and I think the, the and the interesting point for those of us who maybe feel like, oh yeah, I like futurists. I'll call myself a futurist, is to consider that that you might actually just be a shill for those conversations yeah. because you're going to want to say what everyone else is saying and and do it and have like a flashy kind of keynote presentation around it. And 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 then you're sort of you're an operator for yeah. those particular futures. Well, that's as why we to, that's why we wanted to do this show. Actually, we wanted to sort of take back the yeah. uh, the moniker of the futurist and and define that by having really smart people that are actually building the future come on the show. So uh, we're glad you're you're on. One final quick question, and then we're going to go to break. Um, is there a science fiction story that's most representative of the future you hope for? <laughs> um, I, I don't think it's been written. <laughs> I, I think there, I think there, I think there, there's a, the, the solar punk genre has been absolutely fascinating for me right. once I kind of stumbled across it, um, uh, a year or two ago. 
and been having lots of lots of really fascinating conversations within the near future laboratory community about about that. So it, it's you know it's got this utopian bent to it in the in the general's case, but then then are there elements of it that you can draw draw from to help feel into possible futures? And there's some you know like really pragmatic aspects of it. It's like okay, so you know photovoltaic power. Okay, cool. Like right. let's let's uh, let's explore that and kind of like Any particular giant sand batteries. Sorry. For our listeners, are there any particular book titles in the solar punk genre that you'd recommend? Uh, I would recommend um, it's Andrew Dana Hudson's because um, I screwed up the title of the, at a dinner party conversation. Um, <laughs> he did a book that was uh, he refers to it as 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 uh, cli-fi climate fiction, um, and right. it is called. Our Shared Storm, a novel of five climate futures. See, I almost oh, said cool. four climate futures. And it, it's just, it's a beautiful kind of like, um, it, 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 it creates a world, but the world is, takes place um, entirely at, uh, at, a, at a cop session. So the, the um, what is it called? The, uh, it, where everyone gets together to essentially- Yeah, COP. On COP. Like yeah. a climate summit, yeah. Yeah, like and, and, and it's, 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 that, it's the same summit, but where each of the characters slightly changes in in each one of the in each one of the future, so you get these different points of view about about climate change, about the world that he's kind of imagining into, and about the challenges of it that it, I found just really compelling, both as for its structure as well as for the content. Yeah, I find uh, Kim Stanley Robinson's work in climate fiction similarly powerful in that respect. But uh, I'm a bit of a um, culture. Um, you know, series, Ian Banks uh, fan, mm. um, just to, purely in terms of the augmentation of humans. But anyway, all right, well, that's great. Um, thank you very much, Julian. Let's go for a quick break. You're listening to The Futurists. We'll be right back after these words from our sponsors. Provoke Media is proud to sponsor, produce, and support The Futurist podcast. Provoke.fm is a global podcast network and content creation company with the world's leading fintech podcast and radio show, Breaking Banks. And of course, it's spin-off podcasts, Breaking Banks Europe, Breaking Banks Asia Pacific, and the Fintech Five. But we also produce the official Finnovate podcast, Tech on Reg, Emerge Everywhere, the podcast of the Financial Health Network, and Next Gen Banker. For information about all our podcasts, go to provoke.fm or check out Breaking Banks, the world's number one fintech podcast and radio show. Welcome back to The Futurists. I'm Rob Tursik with my co-host, Brett King. And this week, we're talking to Julian Bleeker, who is the author of the Manual of Design Fiction. And that makes me wonder, Julian, what the heck is design fiction? Yeah, so design fiction is a way of approaching uh, or sort of occupying the future through the kind of creative processes and kind of material making processes of design by actually in in summary sort of like going to the future sort of behaving like as if you were an archaeologist but rather than digging into the past you're actually kind of digging into the future if you can imagine what that would be and it's a way of essentially applying your imagination to try to find the artifacts that you might see in a particular future's world so in in some respects it's like the inverse of what a uh, of what we typically think of, of, of doing futures work, where you sort of start with the kind of global macro scale world building 
this is the nature of the world, this is the kind of environment it exists in, this is the political system and all these kinds of things. With design fiction, you really are a very humble, modest witness to the world. Like you don't have the all-seeing kind of God's eye point of view. And you and you just sort of imagine yourself going to a corner store or going into, uh, stumbling into someone's living room and just gazing, looking about, like, what do we see here? And what are the objects? And so it takes a, it takes a lot of force of imagination, uh, to, to go there. And oftentimes that comes with like the setup and also a little bit of focus. So if you were to say like, I wonder what the, I wonder what the chat GPT future is. Mm-hmm. And the, oftentimes if, when that question is asked, people say, well, it's going to change the nature of, you know, everything from, you know, PR to like book writing, that kind of stuff, which to me, I get, but also feels a little bit vague. Like I want to know in the chat GPT future, what's on someone's bedside table? What is, what is, what are the things that they are, uh, that, 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 uh, how do they order breakfast? What are they, if they're going to have a conversation with someone at a, a dinner party conversation, what is the nature of that? Is there, is chat GPT also there chiming in? And so these are the finding those kind of everyday, ordinary kinds of experiences is where design fiction is sort of situated. Very humble, very modest, not expecting to explain the whole world, only expecting to find, as the archaeologist does, if you think what an archaeologist does, a fragment of the world that they use in order to kind of asking that object, like, tell me where you came from. What did you do? What was your function? And it might be a shard of pottery. So this shot of pottery isn't going to say like, well, the nature of our political system was this, and these are the kinds of issues that we had um, as, as a society. It's going to say, I held soup, and that was a staple of, of this world. And so we're looking for those kinds of things, and those kinds of those kinds of elements, those little elemental aspects of the world are, in my mind, they really, they're really what build it out, and they allow the person who is trying to go to this world or the group or the team to almost like occupy it as if they were kind of walking around a film set and they didn't know what the film was about. Yeah. You just see props. Yeah. Yeah. I get it. It's, it's, it is, it's an imaginative process of it's very much like a film, right? If you, if you think about what filmmakers do, they imagine worlds. Sometimes they're very worlds that are very similar to where we're in. Sometimes they're very strange worlds in the future, but they imagine them from the point of view of the people in the world. And so it's what's different, you know, world building is this kind of grandiose undertaking where you're designing the whole world and all the systems. And, and you actually believe when you're in that process, you believe you can understand those systems that are so big and uncomprehensive, they're incomprehensible to people. You know, for instance, the real world today, if you think about our, our financial system, or if you think about uh, our supply chain, these are things that ex- exceed human capacity for imagination. And yet, when we design worlds, when we design stories, we assume that we can actually design those systems, right? We, we have, it's, it's kind of grandiose. And what you're saying is you can take a different approach. There's a humbler approach where it's almost like that first person camera um, where you're just taking snapshots of the world and seeing how people live. And you might not ever get to the whole system, but you'll see the implications of it and how, it's, how it touches people's lives. Uh, and one of the things that you do is you actually design the products, right? You design the stuff that inhabits that world for those users. And you'll go all the way through to uh, to making the product and even making the TV commercial for it. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. And that, that's another way of uh, almost, you know, the lessons that I learned, I guess, when I was, when I was at USC and just the experiences I had um, through life is that if you can kind of bring something into existence, like summon it, in some way and, and and even just doing it so that it's a it's an it's a 
it's a it's almost like a, a flanking maneuver. So you don't have to actually, you know, you don't have to create it. Uh, you create it as if you were going to manufacture it, but you you stay at the as if. So I'm not saying like, you know, you create the thing and then actually try to start a company around it, that kind of thing. But you create the material that would effervesce out of the thing if it were in the world. A quick start guide for a product, a manual that might go along with it. Uh, you had like the bus side advertisement for service. And you do that in a, you do that in a way that uh, the process of getting to creating that, that, uh, that, that element that represents the, the idea or the concept, the thing that kind of fell out of your conversation about this future world. You do that because in that process of creating the advertisement or the unboxing video, or whatever it might be, you're learning more about that world. You have to ask yourself questions like, well, is it going to be, is it going to be a nine by 16 video, for example? Uh, is there still going to be a YouTube or is it going to be something else, some evolution of it? Is it going to be Nabisco YouTube? You know, you, all these kinds of ways in which you can tweak the future that gives people the sense of like, okay, there's been a change in the world. It's almost like the, you know, the intro to like a good Paul Verhoeven film where he'll have mm -hmm. a bunch of advertisements. You guys remember that's that right. from like yeah, Starship Troopers? Right. Starship like, Troopers, yeah. Yeah. And, and it's like that no beautiful. More? <laughs> exactly. It's that beautiful way of, of providing exactly. like almost this gateway into the world. And yeah. I think the, the, the beautiful aspect of it is that A, it's, it's just hella fun. Right. Yeah. Cause now you can, you're feeling that kind of, that kind of effervescent enthusiasm and engagement with creativity, with your creative consciousness that we, that we, a lot of us forgot after we were like eight years old and we got scolded for not drawing something that looked like it was supposed to look. And we just sort of give up on, on bringing our creative consciousness to the hard work of imagining and imagining what the world could be. Mm -hmm. And part of what design fiction does is it allows us to have fun again with thinking about the kinds of worlds we're going to occupy, as opposed to the anxiety that we have when we think about the future. We're just like, oh my God, climate change, man, this is going to be a bumpy ride. And you can bring a certain effervescent enthusiasm that is, I think, the opposite of the the heavy load that we carry for the future and it allow it lightens that load just a little bit so that you can then do that hard work and it's it's almost like running a, like if we said like okay we're all going to put running shoes on now we're going to run 10 kilometers people are like you're crazy that that's going to hurt it's like we're trying to do the same thing with the future it's going to hurt but we just got to get into it and we have to be happy and enthusiastic and cheer each other on and encourage each other for this journey of doing that work and i think design fiction because it brings an element at least when I do it, there's always an element of humor. Mm -hmm. Like there was, there was, there was one piece I was working on uh, uh, last night, which is for and actually, you know, I heard it was it was an episode of your podcast where you're talking about the AI for the lawyer. Yeah. So we did a design fiction that this was it it, it appeared in a project for for for. A, a, a very large client. The one that gets you out of traffic fines, right? Yes, yes. So uh, we had done a little little design fiction for for a client, uh, and it was uh, it was called it was called uh, um, Ari Chat. And Ari Birnbaum is a recurring character in our design fiction. It's just a funny guy who shows up. And this was essentially three hours of associate level legal counsel, and it was just like a little SD card. It didn't say where it goes or what happens, but it had the package design. You know, it was like a typical blister pack that you would see if you walked into a 7-Eleven. You might just grab one of these things like, yeah, I'm going to need this because I got to, I got to, you know, it's a, I've got, I'm going to have to argue with my wife's divorce attorney and it would just pop in. And so these ideas, you can represent that, that beautiful conversation you had with your guest about, you know, this thing is coming. Of course it's coming. You can represent that 
uh, in this way where it's it's almost opens this portal to that world because it looks like a real thing. Like, oh my God, yeah, it makes, you get this? it makes it really possible for other people to understand it and to imagine it. And to ask questions about it. Like the, it's the conversation starter. People say like, wait, what is this? It's uh, really cool. And then, then you can engage that conversation. Uh, if it, you imagine, imagine, imagine you just saw it like on a counter. You walked into a a Seven Eleven or, or a friend of yours. It spilled out of their bag, and you're like, whoa, whoa, what is this thing? And when they start asking the question, that's where you want to get people. That you don't want to be told the future. You want to kind of feel into it in this kind of indirect way. It is true. Your 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 visions are incredibly appealing, and you you want to touch them. You want to hold them. I've noticed on the on Facebook, you're posting images of um, these sort of like futuristic, uh, uh, all terrain vehicles that you're designing, and it's sort of Mad Max, but it's also kind of Range Rover and you know, like kind of Luxo in a way. What the heck is going on there, right? So I want to know the story behind those pictures. I love the pictures. Yeah, so uh, it, it started very organically. It was more just like a bunch of us in in the Near Future Laboratory Discord have been playing with Midjourney and mm -hmm. doing it in a way where we're you know, we're doing projects and also just trying to feel what it's like to have a robot collaborator, as if you're in you know your art studio and you're working with this other collaborator. So we're just trying to feel like what would, what might this world be like? And as part of that, yeah, I just started I started doing uh, vehicles. And was so just kind of generated. Enthralled. You're not making the art. You're generating those with Midjourney. Yeah, Midjourney and I are collaborating on it. I'm sort of like poking it and prodding it and asking it to try different things and giving it uh, models of of you know. You know so you're an vehicles. AI whisperer, also. Yeah, so I'm just kind of like whispering to the AI. <laughs> so like, give me something. And then the the interesting thing, Robert, to your question about about design fiction. So it it, it wasn't it wasn't enough for me just to make the vehicles themselves. And to as as easy it is to kind of fetishize the kinds of things that were popping out from the algorithm. Uh, I the first time I posted one, I wasn't really thinking about it as a project so much as like, what is this thing? And the 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 note that I added, the sort of you know the the, the text that went along with the image, I wrote it as if this was something that existed and someone was trying to sell it or looking for a part. So I did it in the in the vein of the. Uh, the auto trader, which was like something that I remember from my youth, like when I yeah. wanted to buy my first kind of you know beat up car. Like a friend and I were looking for a for a for a '67 or '68 Mustang that was under 500 bucks that <laughs> needed a lot of work because we wanted to work on a car and thought it'd be fun. And so every week I would go to the Krausers kind of convenience store that was a few miles from the house and and pick up this auto trader. And so you you flip through it, it's like a newspaper thing. And I thought, man, like it would be beautiful, like to to create these cars from some particular world. Um, and do it as if this was from an auto trader. I had gone to some future or some adjacent now, got this auto trader, and that I could express the characteristics of this world almost like two layers down. So again, not doing the top-down world building, but like this is something that someone got at a corner convenience store from some world. Can I piece together like a like a like that archaeologist from the future looking into the future? Can I piece together a sense of what this world is at this level? Can I describe a kind of world that I might imagine? And for me, the impulse was go to a world where it's like, yeah, you know, there's climate change and there've been some challenges, but it seems like we're getting along, like things are working out. It's not what we expect. There's no more, you know, that I can get my, my uh, Brazilian coffee beans, um, you know, two continents away. And it, and maybe there's something going on in the in the environment. So I express things like the, the the vehicles come with special filtration systems. So maybe the air is not so great. 
but we're we're still we're dealing like we're we're getting on with things in the world and we're we we we're not suffering through the zombie apocalypse it's just a little bit different and i think so that's the kind of way of fiction, encouraging these futures so when you do design fiction you are uh you're like an archaeologist of the adjacent future um or or of imagined worlds right of uh, of imagined possibilities uh, that's a really fun idea. And the, the way you describe it, it's like, oh, I went to an adjacent world and it's like, as if you're going to a Kinko's or something to pick something up. Uh, I love that you can just dip in and out of these worlds so, so easily and so fluidly. I think the, the, yeah, that, that's right. That's a, that's a, that's a wonderful way of putting it. For, for me, it, it provides, it, it makes the idea of, of kind of finding the way that as I said before, it's like, you know, absolutely essential that we all spend time in the future. It makes that prospect more accessible rather than having to, you know, go through reams and reams of data and make prediction, which is unnerving for very many people. Like, yeah. you know, tell me what's next. The, pe most people would just sort of shrug. It's like, I, I don't know, whatever Elon said, I guess. Or whatever well, I read. Well, forecasting methodology is also hard work, and it really hard work. focus, and you do have to deal with a lot of data if you're going to do it right. And many people can't cope with that. So you're quite right. Your approach is a lot more interesting, a lot more fun. It it sort of awakens the curiosity, um, and and it does that for people who aren't that naturally uh, imaginative on their own. You know, it would um, it would invite them to participate in your imagination. You give them a, a, an object from the future or an object from an alternate world they can mess with. You, you know, for the audience here who's listening, let's try to make this a little more concrete because mm -hmm. what we're talking about is super fun, but I've read the book and they haven't necessarily, although they should. Um, so tell me about the Ikea catalog and tell me about the TVD catalog because these are kind of like the auto trader that you're just sharing with us. Yeah, that's right. So the Ikea catalog from the future, that was a, it was a project. Uh, the engagement was with um, a place called the Mobile Life Center in uh, in Stockholm. Uh, uh, it was an academic, um, research-oriented uh, program, and they just they just they're like, we love design fiction. We want to do it with some of our students. Could you facilitate something? And so we just settled on after a, after a bit of a conversation, settled on the idea of like, let's just do a product catalog for IKEA from the future. I mean, it's such a such an iconic brand. Never mind that you know they're they're based in Sweden. Um, mm -hmm. Sorry, the the Mobile Life Center, but just such an iconic brand that there's that you bring a lot of um, yeah. You just you you bring the natural assumption when you see something with the IKEA branding on the cover. What would be in that that we wouldn't have in a regular IKEA catalog? Oh, there was all kinds of things. I mean, you know, at the time we did it, there was like uh, drones were a big thing. So there was like there were there was like uh, drone based delivery uh, of your IKEA products. There was um, there was uh, the well, this stuff was like on the edge, but we kind of took it to where the, its logical conclusion. So essentially, using AR and VR uh, as as you know as an accessory to the home, just the way you might go to IKEA and get a lamp, mm -hmm. you might get a you know an AR or VR system for you know in home for your in home use. So there were all things that they they, they, they allow to you three, to download three D printed designs of their furniture and print them out at home. Yeah, so that that's an element of it. So finding the ways in which you can kind of, you 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 don't go so far. I know we're going to go into like the far future, which makes me nervous. But you don't go so far as to as to make it be like, oh, okay, obviously this is, this is some kind of futuristic. It's thing. still believable. It's like adjacent. Yeah. It's like you're rubbing up against the future, which is something that I think we we experience all the time. You know, like when ChatGPT dropped, or just yeah. even just the the large language models became more publicly accessible. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, um, often we we comment about the fact that even though it's so apparent what's coming, 
with AI that you'll still see people see ChatGPT or say, oh, it's never going to replace a human's job, you know, because <laughs> they can't extrapolate yeah. where it's going to go, which stuck blows with my mind, you know, because, yeah. I mean, this is how we think all the time, of course. But um, so this is a really elegant way of solving that problem, sort of putting people in that world of the future. I, I like it. Yeah, yeah it's really cool. It helps fill in the blank. You know, they say um, they say a movie producer is a person who looks at a glass this glass is half full that I'm holding up. Uh, for those who can't see what we're talking about, I'm holding a glass, a half full glass of water. Um, and uh, and they say, uh, you know, most people look at that and say, well, that glass is only half full. But a movie producer looks at the glass and says, oh, I know exactly how I'm going to fill that glass. And I know exactly <laughs> where to get the water. To, and it's going to be the greatest water. And, and like their imagination fills in the blank. And in a way, you're taking it a step further because you're filling in the blank so much that here's the ad for the product. It's not just the product and the benefits of the product and the usage and all that, but you've also anticipated how we're going to sell the thing, how we're going to convince people to part with their hard earned yeah. cash to do it. Yeah. Have you been to the Meow Wolf shopping mall in uh, Vegas? Totally, totally been there. And every and I recommend everyone go check it out because it has that beautiful immersive experience of like now what world. And and it was it was beautiful for me because I only expected one level. And then I saw someone walk through a freezer, like the butcher freezer, and I was like, what and I had that feeling, what the heck is going on here? And all of a sudden, like I opened up to receiving the possibility that I that that there could be another world yeah. you know, behind the butcher's behind the butcher counter. And exactly. I think that's what we're trying to do with design fiction is give that people a sense of like, okay, it is possible to imagine the world otherwise. Yeah. And and and, and, and I can help create that. And with Meow Wolf, it's actually like a physical world with different dimensions that you can go through. So so you can actually experience transitioning into a different alternative, you know, dimension or another, another imagined imaginary dimension. I'm loving this conversation because we're talking about the imagination, which is a difficult topic for most people, but we've reached that point in the show now where we need to focus on the far distant future. So every time, everything you do, like literally every minute of your day is spent thinking about imaginary futures and possibilities for the future and alternate worlds. Tell us what's out there 10, 20, 30 years from now. And, and maybe it helps if you think about a particular field or a particular kind of client problem that you're solving. Okay. So my mind immediately went to, um, large, large, because because my focus lately has been on how, on understanding to a certain degree, like how the mind works and how we can find ways to really adapt the mind to the challenges that we have coming forward. And there's been a lot of, uh, there's been, a lot of interest and kind of research and exploration, well, for a long time, but particularly now with with psychotropics, and so I'm yeah. fascinated about where these are going to go um, as they, uh, you know, in the optimistic case, help unlock all the blocks that we have to realizing our potential. And I'm not talking about like uploading the brain into into a supercomputer. I'm talking about like our own individual ability to understand our behavior patterns and understand how we how we exist and occupy, understand why we get angry understand why what makes what are the beautiful things that make us uh, feel happy or enthusiastic or excited and and also I think hopefully unlock and and, and re help us understand what makes us um, challenge each other in non-productive ways I'll say where where does argumentation and dispute come from and where does a lack of acceptance of difference derive to where we actually or we, you know we're willing to like you know, go to war with each other. Where does that come from? And why is it in our nature to do that? And where do those, I guess those, the, the dreams that create that sense of, you know, frustration or anger that lead people to say like, let's spend, you know, $10 trillion on military stuff. 
that that doesn't have to be. It seems to me, no. and I, and so I'm, I'm well, curious. Yeah, it is a choice, right? Yeah, you know, we are I wanna, sacrificing. I want to swing back to the psychotropics yeah. because uh, you you raised an interesting possibility. Because a moment ago we were talking about Chat GPT and um, and large language learning models, and you know the advent of AI seems to suggest that parts of the way we think are going to get replicated by machines, right? That, that seems like a reasonable premise. Right. And that creates a lot of fear in a lot of people. They're worried about their job. You mentioned copywriters and advertising people and you know graphic designers and so forth. That's a real concern. Okay. With the psychotropics, what you introduced is such an interesting idea there because to me, it's like there's now evolutionary pressure. We've created a competitor and now we've created evolutionary pressure for us to change our minds. And so mm -hmm. now we're groping towards another technology, psychotropics, that'll help us change the way we actually think or change our imagination so that we can stay one head, one step ahead of the machines. This is a super fascinating idea. We could do a whole, a whole additional conversation <laughs> on just that idea, Julia. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think, I think um, I, it, it would be encouraging, like if, if we found a way to sort of like look at you know all the developments in AI, which are which are expansive and 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 challenging, as looking at AI is like oh man this is like this is, we just we invented a new kind of hammer, this is actually going to be an amazing tool. Yeah, and I think the, the more we have stories about the AI kind of breaking loose and then you know kind of making our toasters start kitchen fires, uh, the the harder it is to sort of imagine the opportunities. And I think imagining the opportunities is is part of it is saying like, okay, this isn't a challenge to my job. This is actually an opportunity for me to evolve and develop, which I know is hard. Most people get it, they, they find their career path and they don't want to get off that rail. Yeah. And so at some point over the, you know, the the three or four generations that they're going to be around and working, anytime that challenge obtains or they get laid off and because the, the industry has changed, it's like people freak out. And I think that we can, we, once we realize that these beautiful folds in our, in, in this vascularized piece of meat on our shoulder are actually an, an amazing, amazing resource for considering like new ways of existing, new ways of living, new ways of creating value exchange, the quicker so we're going to get out of these challenges. It makes you optimistic as well. Is there, is there anything else like this? Is there any specific technology or something that you see coming that makes you optimistic? I think the any technology that's that's challenging the uh the, the the existing social formations I think in a way any any technology that feels like there is there's going to be like very clearly distributed power and influence so I think you know I'm not sure where it's going to go to be honest but it's like I, I am enthralled by like blockchain I you know I it, I don't know if that's a good or bad word at, the, at yeah. this point in time but the but what word. essentially like the what what undergirds it as a matter of principle like the technology might be flawed. In, in well, yeah, but we need some better way of sharing data across, you know, um, wide uh, networks and having, um, you know, like persistence of that data that can't be easily hacked as an example. And blockchain is at, at least an attempt at that. So it, it, it represented something at the time when it became, when it, when it generated, you know, all the fascination or, you know, um, 24, 36 months ago. And, and that, and there are very few technologies that I can point to that I can think of that, that generated optimism prior to, yeah. uh, let's say the internet, you know, uh, when the, uh, when the internet I'm became sure ubiquitously available. Uh, I'm sure your optimism, the blockchain gives birth to decentralized organizations. Decentralized organizations are the opposite of every organization on the planet. Every government, yeah. every company, every college and school is a top-down hierarchy, and that's a system we've yeah. had in place for six hundred years. Smart contracts—you need dis decentralized and distributed organizations. 
yeah, the fact so. that it came along when we, when there was incredible kind of social and political strife, or you know, became became it, it gave people a place to go to to yeah. say like, okay, may, maybe the world can be better. And it, it's a little bit problematic that it was like maybe the world can be better because of a piece of technology or or a white paper. But we felt enthusiasm, and I think that 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 is that is maybe more important than anything. Well, that's a good way for us to wrap, Julian. Thank you for uh, coming on the show this week. Um, Super fun. Thank you. How can uh, people find out about the Manual of Design Fiction and about the work generally that you're doing? Uh, well, the Manual of Design Fiction, it's, uh, you can go to themanualofdesignfiction.com. Look at that. I know how to, I know how to PR a book. Um, and uh, the Near Future Laboratory is, is where we're mostly uh, situated. Um, and just to say that the, the manual, the, it sold out super quick. So that's when I'm not a good, I guess maybe too good of a salesperson. Um, and we're, the second printing is, is coming very soon. Fantastic. Well, thanks very much for, uh, for joining us. Uh, if you uh, enjoyed the show, uh, make sure you uh, give us a review on iTunes or, or Spotify or wherever it is you download the show, uh, leave some comments. Uh, that feedback is always valued by us. And, of course, tell your friends about the show. Um, that's how we uh, pick up audience. Um, all of that is uh, valuable. But we will, we, you know, let's first of all thank the team at Provoke who uh, helps us put the show together each week. Kevin Hersham, our uh, audio engineer, Elizabeth Severins, our producer, and, um, you know, the team, uh, the team generally at Provoke that, that help us get the show out. But we will be back next week with another riveting futurist-focused guest. Until then, Robert and I will see you in the future. In the future. <laughs> Great. Well, that's it for The Futurists this week. If you like the show, we sure hope you did. Please subscribe and share it with the people in your community. And don't forget to leave us a five-star review that really helps other people find the show. And you can ping us anytime on Instagram and Twitter at, at Futurist Podcast for the folks that you'd like to see on the show or the questions that you'd like us to ask. Thanks for joining. And as always, we'll see you in the future.